The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. This past week, I had the opportunity to meet with one of you who's in this room, and some questions were raised about last week's, where we ended last week. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 3, I'm going to build a bridge into the New Testament and give some clarity as to how I'm reading these New Covenant texts. Jeremiah 3, 16 is where we begin today. And when you, Israel, have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord... They shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations, the Gentiles, shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. And the question that was raised was, when I read that, it, it, I heard what you were saying, but it, what I was seeing was new heavens and new earth language. The new Jerusalem brought in and all the nations gathering to the new Jerusalem. And my response was, yes. And what I want us to see is that the New Testament sees the new covenant as being realized already. And yet, the consummation, the ultimate fulfillment of everything the new covenant that was anticipated to come with it is still not yet. So, up on the screen is a diagram of history from original creation to all that Revelation anticipates. From old age to new age. From old covenant to new covenant. And... What we have is Jesus coming and not finishing everything all at once. What sometimes looks like, from the Old Testament perspective, is going to happen at one exact point in time, gets stretched out in what I've called the overlap of the ages. So that Jesus comes as suffering servant and will come as conquering king. And we're living in the middle here. What the Old what the New Testament calls the latter days, the end times. In former times, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Pentecost erupts, and Peter says, you see what's happening? We're not drunk. This is what Joel said would come in the latter days. Already. The gospel, good news of the kingdom of God being realized right now. In ever increasing, ever expanding ways through suffering and through sharing. And yet, still awaiting the day when the gospel of the kingdom will give rise to full-blown new heavens and new earth. So here we are, living in the overlap of the ages, having a taste of heaven come upon us, and yet still in a world where we battle cancer 
car accidents, and sin. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews talked about it. Hebrews 10, verse 9. In Jesus' coming, He does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. The old covenant is a picture of the old age. Israel is called the Son of God. Israel is my firstborn son, God said to Pharaoh. And God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests, imaging the holiness and the glory of God to the world. That is, Israel was supposed to be what Adam was supposed to be. And just as Adam was created and then placed into his own paradise called the Garden of Eden, Israel was created and placed into their paradise called the Promised Land. And in the, promise, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was supposed to be an imager of God, displaying God. And what God said was, fill the earth, multiply, subdue it. And as the Garden of Eden would expand, Adam and Eve multiplying and the image of God being taken to the ends of the earth, the glory of God would be manifest. And then Adam sinned and didn't fulfill his mission. God raises up Israel to be a small picture of what Adam was supposed to be. He places them in the promised land and calls them to be a light to the nations. Taking his image to the ends of the earth. And Israel fails. And just as Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Israel's kicked out of the promised land. But in time, what happens is Israel, the nation, gets boiled down to one who's born of a woman and born under the law. That is, he's the offspring of the woman. The ultimate last Adam. The ultimate human. Embodying in himself what humanity is supposed to be. And he's also born underneath the law in the Old Covenant, the son of David, the king that was anticipated. Jesus becomes Israel. He embodies in Himself Israel, and He embodies in Himself all of humanity, and therefore He can represent all of Israel and all humanity. So we are born into this world, identified with the first Adam, and the prayer is, and the mission of the church is, that more people would all of a sudden be dead to Adam and be identified with the new Adam, Jesus. And Jesus brings heaven to earth. He, he brings the kingdom into the present. And it says, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. But lest we think there isn't an overlap, chapter 8, verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. Yes, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it's as if there's still these lingering elements of the old covenant, the old age, the old creation, and we're living in that world. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So we have the beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, and then we have the end, the end of the ages, all of history being framed by this reality. Jesus comes at the end of the ages, says the writer to the Hebrews, and yet he's also able to say that 
There's a group that have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So we're in the end of the ages, and yet there's still an age to come that is intruded into the present. So here's last week's passage. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. When is that? When there won't be an Ark of the Covenant anymore that's external to people but, and has the Ten Commandments within it, at the very place you would have expected an image of the God in the Jerusalem temple, what you get is a throne. God's presence hovering over it. Now there's going to be a day where that throne, the Ark of the Covenant, will no longer be remembered because what once was inscribed on the human heart, namely sin, Jeremiah 17.1, will no longer be there. Instead, Jeremiah 31.33, the law will be inscribed on our heart, no longer bound up in a box, but will be inscribed on the human heart. A transformed person. All of them gathered to Jerusalem, it says. The nations shall gather to it namely to Jerusalem, and God's throne will be resting on a large Gentile uh, group of people who are now in Jerusalem mixing with the group of Jews who have gathered, and you have multiplied and increased in the land. When you gather, and in verse 14 it said they're gathering to Jerusalem, to Zion. Is this happening now? Here's how the writer to the Hebrews talks. You have not come, church, to Mount Sinai, to the Old Covenant, where God is blazing and where fear is being created. Rather, you have already, right now, come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Already, we're there. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. At that time, when Moses talked, God's voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So, hear that. There's something that can't be shaken right now. And then there's still something remaining today that can be shaken. It's the overlap of the ages. But the day is coming when... That which can be shaken and toppled and broken will be removed. And that which has intruded, namely the future Jerusalem, already coming to earth in the person of Christ, already the world being gathered through the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth being given to Jesus, now saying, go, make disciples, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. All of a sudden, the throne of God and the person of Christ, the kingdom of God is among you, he says. And it begins to, he, the authority of Jesus begins to rule and reign in the church. I would suggest Jeremiah 3 is being fulfilled. Already being fulfilled. People being gathered in. 
identifying with the heavenly Jerusalem, which will one day indeed come to earth. A physical throne of God ruling and reigning us with new creational bodies still to come. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Today we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verses 13 and 14, And the Spirit is the down payment of the future inheritance. So that's where we're at. We're in this overlap period. Something already being experienced. Heaven on earth. The church being made up of those in Jesus. The restored Jews in Jesus. And these Gentiles who've been grafted into what God was doing. I think that's what Jeremiah was envisioning. So I say the shaking mountain is a symbol of the old covenant, whereas that which cannot be shaken is the new covenant, the kingdom of God. One day things that are shaken will be removed in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And then we read, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. We've received the kingdom. The throne of God is among us today. We've already received it. And yet, there's not yet parts that are still coming. And so the book of Hebrews opens up by saying, Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you take thought of him? You made him a little lower than the angels and yet crowned him with glory and honor. And then it says, that person is not just man in general, that person is Jesus, who's been crowned with glory and honor. And though it doesn't appear that all things are yet under his subjection, they are, as we sit here awaiting the day when we'll be able to see it. But he's in control, and that's the hope for all of us. We have already received a kingdom that is directly associated with God's reign and Christ's mediatory role in the new Jerusalem. So that's how I'm seeing this play out. The already, but not yet. Yes? So the statement, this looks like new earth to me. You know, new Jerusalem and all the peoples gathered to the throne. Holy, holy, holy. And I say, yes, it is. But the future, according to the New Testament, has already been birthed. In, the, in us, in the person of Jesus. When He rose from the dead, He received the first fruits of the new creation. He has the resurrection body, and now we as the body of Christ, identifying with Jesus in His body, are carrying our cross like Jesus carried His cross as we await the day of our own resurrection bodies. Jeremiah chapter 12 our next passage. So all we can do is touch on things here. Let me pause and just see if if anybody wants to be bold and ask a question. Laura Lee. Correct? That's right. We're not anticipating an eternity in heaven. That's a temporary state. We're anticipating a new heavens and new earth where we will get physical resurrected bodies just like Jesus did when he rose from the dead and was glorified by his Father. A physical existence 
And the way that Romans 8 says this creation is longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed, it's, it's as if groaning in birth pangs, suggests to, suggests to me that even though we call it new creation, that there will be some kind of connection with what we have now. So this is how, um, what's his name? Jack Lewis, C.S. Lewis. In the final book in Chronicles of Narnia, he begins to um, unpack what that future state is like. And they get in there, the children arrive, and they begin to describe their experience in Narnia. And they're like, it's the same, but, but this is more real. It's more real, but, but there's similarities. And it's as if, as if the light was shining and all of that previous age that we were living in was but the shadow that was being cast by the reality. But what that suggests to me is that the kinds of things that we delight in in this age are not fully separate from what we'll get to delight in in the future. I mean, for me, the kinds of things that fire me up most are sitting in a canoe with my family, fishing in the boundary waters, waiting for a moose to come out. And for my wife, hearing the loons and watching them fly along the, uh, just above the water line until finally they've got enough gusto to take off. That type of peace, that type of serenity, that type of beauty all the while seeing the sunset right over the boundary waters. Or getting to go and just sit on the, the rocks at the North Shore and just to listen to the power of the water, to see the crashing of the sea. That, that what's going on in my soul is not separate, totally distinct from what will happen then. In fact, there's an organic relationship between this world and the next. This is designed to set us up and to actually heighten hope for the new creation, the new earth. And yet then, it will be absent of all the brokenness, all the frustration to which it was subjected in hope. So, in the class that's happening right over there, my sixth grade daughter is in there. And at some point in the last two years, one of the teachers got up and was trying to describe heaven. And she was talking about, and we'll just have all this singing and dancing and we'll just do it and do it. And, and my daughter's thinking, that doesn't really sound that fun to me. <laughs> and I'm saying, think about what's fun. Not just fun, but, but what really satisfies. What, what, where do you find yourself truly delighting in the most increased way so that it's almost like it's, so, it's forced right out of you. You have to raise it up one octave to the point of praise. That's where life is going to exist. It'll happen in corporate. It'll happen in individual. But you'll never forget Jesus the one through whom it's all made possible. So it's, it's a little bit foggy. There's a lot of, I mean, the Old and New Testaments 
speak in language. They're trying to address what it is, but sometimes even the images are contrasting. But they're coming at the image of the glory from different angles. And so I'm hesitant to say this is exactly how it is going to be, but I can say it's going to be beautiful and it's going to have some connection, some connections with what we're experiencing today. You see a mountainscape and you say, wow. We're walking up at uh, Coon Rapids Dam Regional Park this week, and woof, I mean, I couldn't touch it, but I could have thrown a rock at it, but I wouldn't have done that. It was a giant, uh, giant six-foot wingspan eagle. And it was, I mean, probably 15 feet above our heads. So Teresa and I are pushing the stroller, and the twins are, Daddy! Like this. And the rest of my kids missed it. So, um, that type of awe is supposed to rise our hearts to praise today. And it's a taste of the glory. It's all coming from God today, and and it tells me it's probably not going to be much different, but at a higher level of beauty and delight. Chapter 12. Now, yeah, Laura Lee. No, I think that's the, the image of circumcision versus uncircumcision um, is used throughout the Old Testament to distinguish Israel from all the other nations. Now, there were other nations that, I, I've said this before, that did a form of circumcision that freed the glands of the reproductive organ, but they didn't remove the foreskin. They just slit it to free it up. And so Israel alone, removing the foreskin, it became able to be used as all the nations are identified with a callousness around their hearts. And in the Old Testament, to become a Jew, even if you were um, originally a Gentile, to become a Jew, to be able to enjoy the Passover... They would welcome them in, but they would have to be circumcised. That is, they would have to become Israelites. And, but what's anticipated is a day when the enemies of God will no longer approach the city. It will be made up of those who are holy gods. And then we have to go to, and, and it's anticipated in the Old Testament already, um, the calls to that in the New Covenant age, Deuteronomy 30, the hearts will be circumcised. And so we get in Jeremiah 4, the call, circumcise your hearts. In Jeremiah 9, we're told that Judah is among those who still have a foreskin. And then it says, and it puts them right in the list of a whole bunch of nations, Jeremiah 9, 25-ish, the very last two verses of the chapter, and it puts Judah right in the middle of an entire list, and then it says, and Israel is uncircumcised of heart. That is, they look like the nation. So the way I understand that vision is it's a vision of a covenant community that is fully identified with the Lord and where there is no enemy influence or um, enemy hostility. The city is secure. 
and honoring to God. And then we move to Romans chapter 2, very final verses of Romans 2, and Paul says a Jew is not one who is circumcised outwardly, it's one who's circumcised inwardly in the heart of the Spirit. And that is the people of God. And we're anticipating the day when the pure church of God, we're going to talk about this next week as we walk through Jeremiah 31, Lord willing, the, that the church of God is not necessarily equal to what's going on in this room today or what went on out there. That when the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about a purified bride not made up of rebel and remnant, but made up of all remnant. And so there are those that gather that are not actually of us. And they would ultimately go out from us in order to show that they were not of us. 1 John 2.19 So we're gonna, we'll look at that. But that I'm seeing fortification, security, and purity in part of that, that image of the circumcised will no longer approach. Jeremiah 12, now I'll tell you, we've got 18 minutes if we're going to finish at quarter after, and that's even taking three minutes over what we had this morning. Um, so that's my goal, just to let you know. And for me to get where I want to get, we're just going to fly through three key passages that are going to show further the New Covenant vision, setting us up for our reading of Jeremiah 31. So that when it says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, when we get there, we've already got a lot to bring to the table. Jeremiah expected us to. So, Jeremiah 12, 14 through 17. We've already learned about the nations who are going to gather to Jerusalem. Now these nations are called something new. They're called evil Neighbors, Jeremiah 12, 14. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors. So the first thing I want to do is find out who they are. Who are these evil neighbors? Well, in this first verse, they're contrasted with the house of Judah. My evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. So who are the evil neighbors? They're the persecutors of God's people who exiled Judah. So very specifically, Babylon would be among the evil neighbors. But here it's just, it's so general. It's not, specific people groups aren't specified like they are other times. It's just, there's a group of evil neighbors and then there's Israel and Judah. Now, so number one, they're persecutors. But then notice what happens. Compassion is given to these evil neighbors. So we're talking about the Gentiles. Okay, the same group that we saw in Jeremiah 3. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. I think we're still talking about the evil neighbors here. The them is the evil neighbors. And that's made clear in verse 16 when it says, And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. So the they and the them is the evil neighbors. 
Not only are they persecutors, now we learn they're false teachers. But what does it say? If they will learn the ways of my people, if they will give their lives over in allegiance to Yahweh, if they'll be this kind of a people, what is God going to do? He's going to take those who were his evil neighbors, who were not part of the Jewish people. They weren't ethnic Jews. No, they're outside of the Jewish camp. They're the very ones who had done hostility against Israel in the past. But now, if they will learn the ways of my people, learn the ways, if they'll go to school, well, what are the ways of God's people? What are they supposed to learn? What's going to happen? If they learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Once an evil neighbor, now not being plucked out, but being built. Not being wiped away, but being built up right in the middle of God's people. So God's people are restored, heeding God's word. And now there's these others who are from the outside, who are right in the middle of God's people. Remember, that's how Jeremiah 3 was. The Jews gather back to Jerusalem, restored to God, and then the nations gather to the same place. Now, same image, evil neighbors brought right into the middle of God's people. But then it says in the final verse, if they don't listen, destruction. Not all Gentiles who were once hostile to God and call His enemies will be with God forever. Nor will all Jews. Only those who could no longer be called evil. Only those who have been aligned with Yahweh. So you've got the people of God. Here they're not describing what the Jews will be like. That description is coming in Jeremiah 31. But you've got the people of God made up principally of Jews and all of a sudden Gentiles are being put right down into the middle of them and they're listeners. Hear, O Israel. Hear. Here, they're listening to words that are being spoken and it's resonating in their soul. They're not disabled. They have ears to hear. Hear this, O senseless and foolish people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me? Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 5, 21. Disability. Eyes but don't see. Ears but don't hear. But now there's going to be Gentiles who are going to hear. Disabilities overcome. Hearts transformed. And they're placed, they're considered as if they're right in the midst of God's people. But those who don't listen, cast aside. Jeremiah 16. Sorry, Jeremiah 23. And if you want... Put your finger back in Jeremiah 3 where we started today. First step, a new exodus and a new David. This is all part of New Covenant. There's a vision for better shepherds. Israel's had bad shepherds. Those who should have been providing and protecting them have led them astray. 
We read about them in Jeremiah 3. I hopped over the verse when we were there last week, but here was the verse. Return, O faithless children, verse 14, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And then we get the verse about the Ark of the Covenant being no more and God's throne being in Jerusalem. I'll give you good shepherds, not bad ones. This is a new covenant vision. You read the Old Testament, the majority of the shepherds, that is the leaders, whether they be prophets, priests, or kings, all of them are tagged the shepherds of Israel. And they've led Israel astray and they haven't fed them well. Jeremiah 23 comes in. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away. You've not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. But then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. That's straight out of Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And I will set over them shepherds who will care for them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. New covenant is about leadership that honors God. So we get statements like this. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the shepherd lamb. Or we get the word for pastor is exactly the word for shepherd. It only shows up in Ephesians 4.11. God gives us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Pastors there, and even in the ESV it translates it, shepherds and teachers. Exodus, sorry, Acts 20, verse 28, the elders in Ephesus are called to shepherd the church of God. ESV, care for the flock. But it's the word for shepherd. This is a new covenant hope when leaders will honor God. But here's the big part of the passage. Behold, the days are coming. That's signal for New Covenant language in Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, for David, a righteous branch. So you've got fruitfulness image. The branch who's going to be characterized as righteous. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. We're talking about the same thing that we were in Jeremiah 3 with the salvation of Israel. And that implies with it, when Judah and Israel are saved, Jeremiah 4, 1, then the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled, Jeremiah 4, 2. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, namely this greater David, will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. And that's what got me this week. Just trying to ponder the significance of the king being called Yahweh is our righteousness. This is his identity, his makeup. In his being, he is our, he embodies Yahweh as our righteousness. So, so think about 
Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Through the good news of the kingdom, the righteousness of God is manifest. Righteousness is about right order in the, in the reality. God is righteous and that, that means he's passionate for right order. Or as Pastor John has simplified it, righteousness is God's passion for his own glory. Right order exists only where God is being seen as supreme. And we are righteous only insofar as we find ourselves aligning with God's definition of right order. How does right order, when we ourselves have been warped and running from God, arrive at us? How can He declare us righteous? It's because the King has come who embodies in His being Yahweh is our righteousness. And we look to Him in faith, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of Him who has embodied God is the King of my life. God is glorified over all things. God is supreme. We look to Him. And Jeremiah envisioned that the king would be Yahweh is our righteousness. That would be his identity mark. Here's New Testament. Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Christ, that's not His name, Messiah. Old Testament hopes of the King. Jesus is it, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith, not through the law, but by faith in the one of whom it could be said, the end of the law is Christ for righteousness. The law finds its goal in Him. He embodies where everything was hoping. So that when Moses calls Israel to pursue righteousness, Deuteronomy 16.20, pursue righteousness and righteousness alone, And all of Israel fails in that task until Jesus comes. He pursues it absolutely right. Not in a way that's exalting Himself, but in a way that's exalting His Father. He becomes what we could not. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. It's this identification with the King, the Great Shepherd, So look at the last two verses. Behold, the days are coming. In those days of the king and the days of the good shepherds, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. No, that's not what they're going to look back to. Not back to that external freedom from slavery to taskmasters, but rather they're going to say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So it says, the day is coming where they're not going to look to the old exodus, there's going to be a new exodus. And what's embodied in that new exodus, as we 
would see it unpacked in the Old Testament, we're going to see more of it in Isaiah, is not only a return to the land, that's merely a picture of an ultimate restoration. Because not only do you have to have a physical restoration to God's presence, you have to have a spiritual reconciliation with God. And I see this coming with Jesus. It's the only time Exodus language is used explicitly with respect to Jesus' ministry in the Mount of Transfiguration episode. Jesus said, I have a departure to undergo in Jerusalem. A departure to undergo. Very literally, he spoke of his exodus. Mark chapter 1 opens up with the vision of Isaiah chapter 40 of how God's going to make straight the paths, lowering the mountains and raising up the valleys. And there's going to be one saying, comfort, comfort. And it's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Remember that? What I see happening, and I'll unpack it further when we get to Isaiah, is the announcement that the exodus is happening. All obstacles are being leveled. And it's not the old exodus. No, it's the exodus that will trump the old exodus. We no longer look back to a physical salvation. We look back to a full life reconciliation and salvation. Salvation, a new exodus. Final text, Jeremiah 30. And Jeremiah 31 is in the very next chapter. So here's how it sets up. Verse 7, the day is so great there is none like it when God will put His judgment on the house of Israel and Judah. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So, Jacob will be saved. Verse 8, three different people groups that we've got to get our hands around to understand this text. Number one, it shall come to pass in that day of Jacob's salvation, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. His yoke. We don't see who the his is in this text, but if you look back at Jeremiah 27, 12, this is the last time we've learned about the yoke. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in this manner, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon. So the yoke is something that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has placed on Israel, and they're the ones that Jeremiah is preaching to. Israel is the you, his yoke, the his, is Nebuchadnezzar. So I want us to see if we can track his logic. I will break Nebuchadnezzar's yoke, he's Babylon. Revelation is going to pick up that image and say, the king of Nebuchadnezzar... Babylon, king of Babylon, he's just a picture of all evil, which can be summarized as the great Babylon. Evil. Evil power. I will break the king of Babylon's yoke off of your neck. So the your, in second person, who's being addressed, is Israel or Judah. 
His neck is Nebuchadnezzar. And then it says, And I will burst your bonds, no more bonds for Israel and Judah, and foreigners. There's a third group. Foreigners, so we've got his yoke, Nebuchadnezzar, on your neck, Judah, and then we've got a third group called the foreigners. He addresses Israel as your. He's talking to them. He's talking about the foreigners as if it's a different group. And the foreigners, it says, shall no more serve... Uh, I, I, the ESV, look at the footnote. Because they didn't make a servant. No one made a servant of Babylon. Very literally, it's they were serving him or serving with him. So you've got Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, putting Israel in a yoke. Now they're freed from the yoke, and then there's foreigners who are serving with Nebuchadnezzar who will no longer serve with him. And then it says in verse 9, but they. He doesn't say, but you, as if he's referring to Israel and Judah. It's but they, namely the foreigners, who once served with the king of Babylon... Now they will serve Yahweh their God and David their king. It's the Gentiles who were once evil neighbors in chapter 12, who were called just the nations in chapter 3. Now they actually have Yahweh as their God and David the Messiah, the son of David, the ultimate David, as their king. Then you read in verse 10, But as for you, notice it goes back to the second person. Then you fear not, O Jacob. So it's, they will serve with Yahweh their God and David their king, but as for you, Jacob, know this. Don't be dismayed, for behold, I will save you from far away, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, but I am with you to save you for... I am with you to save you. I will make a full end of all the nations. So I'm scratching my head now. Nebuchadnezzar's yoke will be broken free from Israel. Foreigners who once served with Nebuchadnezzar will no longer serve him, but they'll serve Yahweh their God and David their king. Know this, Jacob, I will save you, but all the nations I will destroy. So if the foreigners who once served with Nebuchadnezzar are indeed among the nations, but they're serving now Yahweh their God and David their king, they're not called the nations, I think, intentionally in this text, because the nations are those who are destroyed. And God doesn't destroy those who are serving Him. What does that imply? What does it imply about these Groups of Gentiles, these once foreigners who are serving Yahweh their God and David their king. If all the nations are destroyed, what does it imply about this group? They've been grafted in. They have a new identity. They're no longer considered nations, enemies of God. They've been put within, brought into the midst of the people of God. And the same king whose name is Yahweh is our righteousness, is the one that they're serving. And this is massively hopeful for us. Because God's purposes from the beginning were never just Israel. 
It was he set aside Israel for the sake of the nations. And Jeremiah is envisioning that my children from Ethiopia, may it be so, might be among the remnant who are grafted in to an originally Jewish branch. Those who have immigrated from Russia who are here this morning, that they might be grafted into an originally Jewish branch. That those who were born in Minneapolis, that God might let us, who are Gentiles by birth, be grafted in to this originally Jewish branch, getting a new branch, getting a new identity of those who are in the one of whom it is said, Yahweh is our righteousness. And this sets us up then for when it, we read in Jeremiah 31 that God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it doesn't mention the Gentiles at all. We have to remember that there's also a group right in the middle of them. We have to remember that there's a group that's gained a new identity. Not among the nations who will be destroyed. Of whom God is doing this same work that He's doing among a restored Jews. He's doing the exact same work among a restored Gentiles who have no, who've lost their original identity and have now been brought up into the midst of the people. Let's pray. Father, I am standing here grateful to you for who you are for us in Christ. You are righteousness. We praise you. Be our king. Help us to run from what is evil and may you reign on the throne of our lives. May we find refuge in your son who is exalted over all, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. May you work in us what is pleasing in your sight. May your image be displayed. May people see you on the throne of our lives in the way that we respond and the decisions that we make, the action steps that we take. Help us, Lord, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and for your great glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.